heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. This is Dr. Lee for America, in for Malcolm, talking today with one of our international leaders about the successes with early home treatment of COVID and what you need to know to save your life if you become ill with this virus. Since doctors, like our guest, are so successful with treating COVID early and preventing deaths and serious complications, why is all of the media and public health focus so intensely pushing everyone to get vaccinated with experimental vaccines? Why don't you hear more about early home treatment options and the success rate? Why are we pushing to vaccinate even those who were excluded from clinical trials? And why are we vaccinating those who have recovered from COVID? What's the difference between our natural immunity after we get sick with a disease like COVID and the immunity that comes with vaccines? Our guest today has some interesting uh, clinical information to share with us about that. We will be talking about all this and more with our guest expert today. And Dr. Harpal Mangat is an innovator and leader in COVID-19 early treatment, and he has personally treated over 200 high-risk COVID patients early in their home setting and has taught over 600 physicians the successful multi-drug sequenced early treatment approaches that I and other doctors have been using to keep patients out of the hospital and dramatically reduced risk of dying from COVID. Dr. Mangat has a worldwide reach with dignitaries across the globe and with his wife has been integrally involved in the Maryland Antibody Infusion Program. He attended the Medical College of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, trained at Trinity College teaching hospitals in family medicine and ophthalmology before moving to the United States. He did an internal medicine residency in West Philadelphia's Mercy Medical Center before entering an ophthalmology residency at the University of South Florida. He currently is in practice in the Washington DC area focused on challenging cases, and I'm fascinated with his, the fact that he's interested in neurological Lyme disease complications. He's an assistant professor at Howard University College of Medicine, as well as he's involved in teaching nurse practitioner students at the University of Maryland and teaches innovation to University of Maryland biomedical engineering undergraduates as a physician, he has four issued patents in items that he has developed to improve the practice of medicine. He continues his work today 
educating other physicians on the early treatment of COVID with small group Zoom editorials. Welcome to Voice of a Nation. We are so honored to have you, Dr. Mendoz. Thank you. Thank you very much for asking me to be on the show. And thank you for asking all those great questions. Uh, the question about vaccinations is, is the ultimate and probably the most important question facing all of us today. But before I go and you know, give you my viewpoints, I think we have to recount back uh, what happened over the last year. It's been a tumultuous year. We've lost over half a million Americans to COVID. And when it started, there was just sheer confusion. We as doctors did not understand the disease, had no textbook to go on. So we had to learn uh, on the job, for a better word. And I think that created a lot of fear. And uh, the presidential initiative for warp speed vaccines was in, had good intent. But we obviously have seen issues and complications and problems. Uh, prior to going to discuss those, let's just talk about possibilities. I think the most important thing I've seen is fear. People are fearful of the disease. And as FDR said in, in his 1933 inaugural speech, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. We've got to face this. However it landed on our shores, it's here. And we've got to work together and not tear each other apart as the left and the right in this country are doing. We have to work together and share the ideas and take the best ideas and move it forward to serve the nation. And that should be the way it should be done, but we have not seen that. Well, you're right about that. And I, I think there also <clears throat> has been great division in the field of medicine. For example, I know my own internist, when I asked him at my telemedicine appointment last year, I said, well, what would you do? Uh, how would you treat me if I got COVID. And he said, I don't treat COVID. Well, <laughs> you could have knocked me over with a feather. Uh, that was at a time when I'd already been treating early COVID patients with the algorithm you and Dr. McCullough and many of us have been using. And I was shocked. And I'm seeing a division created even in our own house of medicine with some doctors adamantly abstaining from treating COVID and others those of us on the front line saying we can't let patients die on our watch. We've got to get in and do what we can with the tools we have to help people. Absolutely. I think both of us fall in the latter group, but I think coming to that house, house of division, it's sad. I think what's happened is we've entered into corporate medicine where a lot of physicians have become employees of corporations and the administrators make the administrators make the call uh, which is ludicrous i mean i we you know we have to as physicians uh, look at the hippocratic oath our duty is is to serve the interests of the patient at all costs we, we shouldn't be making money on it we shouldn't be making money for corporations on it we should be serving that patient to make sure he's better he doesn't land up in complications and do the right thing for that patient and that's what I'm seeing. I think a lot of these people who are reluctant, it's not because they want to be reluctant, it's just that they have no other option because of the structures they're in. Luckily, I'm an independent practitioner. Uh, I can do the practice of medicine the way I believe. I can use off-label use of FDA-approved products, whereas others in corporate structures may not be allowed to do that by the corporate administrators. It's not that they're not allowed to do it as physicians. We all use off-label use. 
I mean, aspirin has never been approved for treating heart attacks or preventing uh, clots, but we use it because we know it works. And likewise, with the advent of COVID, I think there's been a lot of what I call um, political uh, pressures uh, from governors. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe the state, the governor of Michigan and the governor of New Jersey banned hydroxychloroquine, which is crazy. I mean, you can't let non-physicians tell physicians who study this stuff what to do. And that's the height of, you know, of madness. I mean, as physicians, we have to read, we have to keep up to date. And, you know, the way this has evolved, there's so much new information coming out. The way we understood it a year ago is so different from the way it is today. And what we've clearly understood is that in the first 10 days, the first seven days particularly, if we get in there, bring that viral load down, we do not run into complications. And we create natural herd immunity if everybody does it. Now, uh, to leave people uh, for 14 days and come back to me in two weeks and leave them alone is just asking for uh, disaster, particularly the diabetics, particularly the elderly with the immune system is down, particularly those who are obese. Uh, and uh, that's where you know, the infusions we're using, the newer uh, Trump infusions have come into a uh, great uh, resource because they've saved lives. Uh, and uh, whether you like President Trump or not, he did get an infusion and we're using that infusion and there's enough of it uh, in the country for everybody. But I don't understand why me and Maryland can get the infusion on a weekend to a sick patient when, and others in Texas cannot. So we, we, we have to look at what's going on. Well, could you explain very quickly, I'd like for you to tell our listeners about the three or four major stages of the COVID illness as you conceptualized it in your diagram. And also, I'd like for you to explain what the infusion is that you're talking about. You're referring to the monoclonal antibody infusion. And I think many people are still confused about that and what it is and the fact that it's available. Absolutely. To understand COVID, you can understand the disease. Like in anything in medicine, as you know, um, the, I, Dr. Villa, we have to be focused, understand and comprehend one, the pathogen and two, our body. Uh, so let's go into different phases. The first phase is the, uh, you know, when you, when you catch COVID, it's called the varimia phase. You'll get a sore throat, uh, some fever, some chills, some flu-like symptoms. And that's because the COVID sits in the back of the throat uh, and it gets attached to ACE2, receptors in the back of the throat. And uh, it then eventually proliferates and progresses. That's the second phase is the, what I call the bradykinin storm. And it's akin to having a bee sting. If you have a bee sting, uh, the whole body fluids become more permeable and you, 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 know, you get a swelling where the sting is. Similarly in COVID, the uh, pathways lead to bradykinins being released, causing increased permeability, which causes increased fluid buildup in the lungs. And people have you know, difficulty breathing and there's deposition of hyaluronic acid. And that is in itself an issue because if we ventilate these patients, um, we run into problems. The next phase, which I like to call um, is the cytokine storm. And the cytokine storm 
is the activation of these receptors as the virus gets into the cells and multiplies. And I, we have ACE2 receptors throughout the body, in the brain, in the uh, heart, in the GI, and the lungs. And it's important because people lose their sense of smell and taste. That means it's entering the brain through the, uh, the nose. So you, you gotta be aware of that in the symptoms and picking this up. Uh, people uh, get short of breath. And that's because the virus enters the lung alveoli, the lung cells, and multiplies. And in its multiplication, it sends off what's called cytokines. And that creates a cytokine storm, which results in a lot of inflammation in those territories, namely the lung, the brain, and people uh, can land up with what's called clots. And that's when it gets very difficult to treat. And this you know, you know, warrants you intensive care unit, and often we have a fatal result. That's why it's important. This is not a common cold. This is not uh, influ influenza. It's a serious condition, which we have to treat early to prevent those complications from arising. And there are medications available. Uh, I've been using for over a year. Admittedly, we got better and better at it as we understood it better. But we can prevent those complications occurring. And the, the key thing was the monoclonal antibodies. When President Trump fell ill, they gave him a, an antibody which bound to the uh, spike protein of the COVID. And essentially, it destroyed it. So destroy the COVID from reinfecting other cells. However, you know every drug has a has a relative complication, and we've used this uh, in patients in at-risk patients, uh, and it's worked. And there are complications like pulmonary emboli from even the treatment, so they have to be very carefully monitored and watched. So it's important that we as physicians teach teach each other. You now this is what you got to watch. You got to be careful on this. Uh, and by the way, the, this test is better than that test. For example, recently we discovered using a CT128 slice scanner picks up pulmonary emboli before the emergency room does uh, with the chest x-ray and the D-dimer. And we've just published this. So there's a continual innovation going on in the processes. And as physicians, we have to share this and with each other. And that's critical. So, I mean, there, there are many drugs that can be used in the different pathways. I can certainly tell you what I do, but I'm sure it's not dissimilar to what you're doing. It's just that we've come to the same points independently because we've, we've understood the condition. And that's what the, the problem is. Well, and, and we, we have also, many of us, I mean, there are over 300 physicians in the team of, of doctors that Dr. McCullough brought together that have been exchanging we're in a huge email group and exchange information and updates and what's working. We're exchanging that with each other every single day, learning from each other and doctors all over the world coming together to share information. <clears throat> so you're right. We do need more of that. And yet I'm surprised to hear other physicians saying, well, nothing works. There's no way to treat COVID early. And I'm sitting there saying, there are teams of people all over the world successfully treating people early and saving lives. Other countries have 20 and 30 times lower death rates than the United States where our NIH and FDA and CDC and Dr. Fauci have been telling people to go home and get sick and wait in fear to see what happens. 
we've never done that in medicine. As you know, that's, we always treat early. Absolutely. That's the premise of preventive medicine. That's the premise of medicine, period. We don't leave you to die. I mean, that's why we're in our profession. We're here to uh, get you better. And I think it's, it's tragic that this thing about go home and wait 14 days and come and talk to me in 14 days is inappropriate. It's just asking for disaster. Well, and I, I think it's clearly been lethal. Uh, it's it increased our death rate. We have one of the highest death rates in the world. And, and I think family members have suffered greatly because of that. And we also could have saved uh, Harvey Risch at Yale, Dr. Risch projected that we could have saved 85% of the people who died in the United States had we focused on early treatment. And the, the key point that many of our listeners don't understand is that the vaccines don't necessarily protect you from getting sick. They think it's going to protect and prevent infection and spread, but that's not what the clinical trials show. And I'd like you to address that because it, the vaccines are reducing the severity of symptoms. We still need treatment for people who get sick, correct? Absolutely. I mean, I think we, let's, let's put the, vac the vaccines in context. We have two vaccines a Pfizer vaccine and a, COVID and a Moderna vaccine. The problem we're having is there's a, the problem we're having is there's not full disclosure. There's not full disclosure to the public. There's not full disclosure to the physicians. Let me give you an example. The Pfizer vaccine, when it was introduced in the UK, uh, they had groups of doctors attend uh, lectures on what's gonna happen and the potential complications. One of them was my sister, who's a physician in London. And they were told that in a year, that vaccine will not be valid because we'll need to revaccinate you. That's never been told in this country. Uh, the second thing is, you know, both these vaccines have complications. Vaccines will always have complications. We've seen it. The Pfizer vaccine is a frozen vaccine. The Moderna vaccine uh, has a preservative, and that preservative, preservative S80, has caused problems with the blood-brain barrier in other uh, uh, vaccines. So you gotta be careful on who gets what, but we're not being given a choice. There's such a panic rush to get the vaccines uh, that you know people are suffering from side effects. My own staff uh, had Moderna and she developed uh, a, a neurological complication. Luckily for her, I have an interest in neurological uh, cases and we treated her and she's perfectly okay. So I tell all my patients now, you know, the vaccine has issues. It can have a neurological complication, but if you do get it, I know how to treat it, but you've got to be that candid with your patients. You can't just say, go and get a vaccine. It'll, it'll save you. No, it won't. The, because the second aspect of the vaccination is a lot of these vaccines, especially the two I just mentioned, are experimental technology. We don't know the long-term side effects. And I think Peter McCullough has a great talk on vaccines. You should put him on the air. And he points out how many, how many times the shortcuts have been done on the process. Uh, the second issue is the other vaccines focus on the spike protein. The spike protein is that protein of the virus which attaches to the receptor in the body. And we're seeing variations of the spike protein. And already today, 
uh, the antibodies which President Trump used would not work uh, for the British uh, variation. We have to use two monoclonal antibodies. Um, this weekend, I had a high-level diplomat uh, from a foreign embassy uh, who had the Chinese vaccine, but he got COVID in New York. We, you know, we got issues here, and we need to look at this very, very carefully. Vaccinations will make everybody homogenous and protected homogeneously. homogeneously. So if you have a variation of a virus which can get through that, we go back to square one. Whereas if we use natural immunity and get people over it like we do uh, with flu and the common cold and do the appropriate treatments to prevent complications, we get, we get to herd immunity far quicker and we get a bet, to a better quality herd immunity which can handle the variations. I think this is a fundamental thing that's not being understood and not being transmitted uh, both to the physicians and to the, uh, to the general public. Well, and it's almost as if some of this information is being deliberately suppressed because I personally have heard Dr. McCullough's presentations and I know that he has testified before the U.S. Senate, before the Texas Senate, and he has given many webinars internationally and, and for the U.S. as well, where he has brought up these issues and we post them and they're taken down. So it is increasingly difficult for consumers as well as other physicians to get the balanced information when experts who are doing their best to educate others have their educational content removed from the educational platforms that we have available. It's not just educational platforms. this last weekend, uh, a radio station was about to air one of uh, a very good interview, which I heard from, uh, from Peter. He gave, gave a great talk on the vaccinations and suddenly it was pulled off the air. We have to ask who's doing what and why are they doing this? And it has to be done publicly. And we have to ask our senators, what is going on? Why don't we have a balanced viewpoint? I mean, the, uh, the, why is the FDA not giving full disclosure? I mean, we've had, I've had experience with the FDA and I was shocked to find out that even on the submissions we did, and we didn't need to do the submission, we just did it because we wanted the FDA stamped so the insurance will pay for our drugs. They quoted out-of-date papers. So I've asked Senator Johnson to find out why we have physicians who are out-of-date <laughs> making decisions uh, on important matters that affect our population. And I would encourage everybody to write to the senators and ask the, the question, what is going on and why is this occurring? Well, and that that is part of why it's so confusing for much of the public when many in the medical profession are so enthusiastically supportive of the vaccines and talk about wanting to get it themselves, while others in the medical profession have many more reservations. And as you and I are very aware have seen risk and complications. I've seen some pretty serious life-threatening reactions in patients of mine who went ahead and got the vaccines. I'm very concerned about that. And, And we have concerns and questions that are legitimate and should be addressed and are not being allowed to be discussed. 
that's 100% true. We have, we need to know what, what is going on. I mean, there's a due process and uh, the due process uh, prevents, prevents this. Why has that not been followed? And why are there shortcuts? And why is the information being suppressed? And why is there not full disclosure? Exactly. And I, I think when we come back from the break, I would like to talk with you more about the, the actual success in early treatment, which then helps us to understand that we need to develop more emphasis on that and helps our listeners know better what the options are that are available. This is Dr. Lee for America, in for Malcolm on Voice of a Nation. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listen to Malcolm, the Voice of a Nation on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android or Alexa. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older, until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Welcome back to Voice of the Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America. Our guest today, Dr. Harpal Mangat, who is an internal medicine doctor and specialist in early treatment of COVID in the Washington, D.C. area. He is not only treating patients himself, as many of our politicians and bureaucrats and government employed doctors in the FDA don't do, but he also is teaching other physicians how to understand the COVID illness and how to better meet the needs of their patients so that he's extending our knowledge to others to help them treat patients as well. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mangad, and thank you so much for being with us today. 
I wanted to start this segment off with you explaining to our listeners what they can do, how they can understand what the illness is, what the treatments are, and what they can do in advocating for their own needs in the medical system. Absolutely. I think it's very important that we have a firm knowledge base and understanding that we can demand treatments of excellence. Um, I'm very lucky. I practice on the 270 corridor and most of my patients are very bright PhDs, lawyers, doctors, and they ask me multiple questions. And they're right, and they should ask me questions on why this works, why this doesn't work, and what works better. And I think that should be the practice of medicine in, to everybody. So let's just quickly go through the medications I use for COVID, and I'll try and give a brief understanding as much as I can in the limited time on these medications. The first And most important thing is that all these medications are FDA approved. They're sitting in the pharmacy. They're used for other indications. And uh, essentially, I've used off-label use of these medications. The issue has been not prescribing the medications. The issue has been getting the medications to my patients because certain pharmacists refuse to dispense it. So what we did very early on was we... I found a private pharmacy which was w- willing to work with me and just send them all there. So I, I would check my patients would get it and they would get better. And this is critical because we have a window, a window of seven to 10 days to treat you and prevent complications. If we don't get inside that window, we run risks of dying simply. And we don't want to go to that place. We want to get every better. And so that's what we do. My first and foremost, when I see a patient and, and they clinically look like they have COVID, I request a COVID test. Now, the most important thing to realize is the COVID test is not 100% accurate. One in three times, if the test is done correctly, there'll be a false negative. That means even if they put the tube, the thing up your nose and they put it right up your nose, one in three times, it will not be correct. And the second thing is, very often it's not done correctly. So you, you, know, you have to go with your best clinical judgment. So the approach I've gone ahead with is when I see evidence of a, of a viral attack, which is suggestive of COVID, if it's got a temperature, chills, dry cough, loss of smell, loss of taste, um, I'm very keen to get them started on an antiviral. Yes, it could be flu. I, I'm not going to dispute that. And very often, if I don't know, I'll get them Tamiflu with another antiviral. And the vi- antiviral I've chosen is Kalitra. It's actually used in HIV medicine. And the reason I chose that is the genetic information inside the COVID virus is very similar to HIV. How I got there is a different issue, but uh, early treatment with Kalitra does work in bringing the viral load down. I have a, actually a very interesting case. I have a young Polish PhD who is absolutely resistant to it. So I explained to her, this is what it is, or we can do the conventional 14 days of wait. And in a, in a, about day five or six, she said, Dr. Manga, I will try it. 
that afterwards you become an advocate. I wish I'd done that earlier because it brings the viral load down. In any viremia, you've got to bring the viral load down. But also you've got to understand that's just the beginning of the treatment. This is a virus like other coronaviruses, not just COVID, all coronaviruses have been shown to uh, diminish your immunity, particularly the immunity in your lungs. So it puts you at risk of viral and bacterial pneumonias subsequently. I've, I've seen that and I've treated that. So that's what we, we have to be aware of as physicians. So I often uh, you know, put an antibiotic in uh, because we know that's coming down the pike. And the one I choose is clarithromycin. Uh, other people use azithromycin, uh, but I, I chose that because it covers atypical bacteria. In addition to that, we know that the uh, COVID, if it gets complicated, will cause clots. So I encourage everybody to take a 325 milligram aspirin. The same aspirin we use in heart attacks, uh, preventing uh, strokes to uh, thin the blood, to lessen the risk of a clot. Uh, uh, and that's critically important. The other two things which I started to do more recently, once we understood the bradykinin pathways, I put them on two other drugs. One is Benadryl, old-fashioned Benadryl. And the 50 milligrams of Benadryl at night helps to decrease the bradykinins. That's critically important so that we don't get fluid accumulation in the lungs. And even my respiratory patients who had respiratory issues felt a lot better on the Benadryl uh, as well. And the additional medication I use and is called is old-fashioned Pepsid. Pepsid is readily available. Why Pepsid? Well, Pepsid has been known for generations to block the acid in the stomach, but it also has a unique ability uh, to block a receptor called the Jake 2 receptor. The Jake 2 receptor is, is the receptor that causes a cytokinin release and causes a cytokinin storm. And the data we have when we did our analysis, this certainly helped better than the approved FDA drugs for, or more correctly, they like to tell us the EUA drugs for treating COVID. So this, this combination is embedded in science. Hydroxychloroquine works too, because it works along the pathway. And so does ivermectin, but I'm not experienced enough in those to talk about it. I chose a more traditional route because it identifies the disease and the pathways it does. And that's what I call uh, stopping the uh, COVID as fast as possible. Well, now, let me just stop you for just a quick minute and summarize again for our listeners the medicines that you're using, because I think, I think this is so helpful for our listeners to understand that all of us who are treating early with COVID illness may be using slightly different approaches and slightly different FDA approved medicines, but all of us are approaching it from the standpoint of three major goals, four major goals, decrease the virus and decrease the viral load, which in turn reduces the spread to others. So that's a good thing. Reduce the inflammation. And as you said, the bradykinin reaction that leads to fluid in the lungs, reduce other infections and reduce blood clots. 
And I like the fact that you talk about different medicines so that people can understand this isn't about just hydroxychloroquine. It isn't about just ivermectin. You mentioned Kaletra and that as an, as an HIV medicine. So doctors who have experience with HIV might choose that one, for example. And then in other countries, they're using favipiravir that Dr. McCullough has talked a lot about. About 30 or 40 countries use that particular antiviral. So there are different antivirals that can be used and there are different anti-inflammatories and different anticoagulants. And I, I think it's fascinating how you've brought up some common medicines, Benadryl and Pepsid, that perhaps our patients may already know, may already be taking and don't realize that they could be beneficial in COVID. So thank you for explaining that. Absolutely. I mean, those are the core oral medications, but I do advocate two inhalers too. And the two in inhalers I advocate uh, is one is called Bethesby. This this is the AstraZeneca product, which basically dries up the secretions. We don't want the COVID to enter the lungs. So it has a molecule called glycoprolate, which dries up the secretions. And the second one is Alvesco. Alvesco is a steroid, which the Koreans have shown uh, to uh, be good in uh, killing COVID. And the last but most important thing is I encourage my patients to do nasal rinses because we wanna get that COVID load, which in the back of the nose, away from your lungs. If it goes into your GI, you'll get diarrhea. We can fix that. But we, we don't want you to go into the lungs and get a pulmonary embolism. So it's very critical to try and decrease the viral load as early as possible. And that's why we have to do all the things. We have to clean your nose, rinse your nose at nighttime, uh, do your goggles, uh, do the inhalers, because that prevents it tracking into the lungs we need to keep this stuff away from the lungs. And if we can do that, we can prevent fatality and at, at worst get diarrhea, which is also a symptom of COVID. So it's a common sense approach in the medications we use to do this. And uh, having done this successfully, we were using essentially uh, coupons from the uh, manufacturers to keep the cost down. And what we chose to do was, even though we didn't need to do it, we chose to write a submission to the FDA. And the primary objective was to uh, get some type of stamp uh, that, so that we could get the insurances to cover it. And Peter McCullough countersigned my submission and we submitted it to the FDA. And we were horrified. We were horrified by the response and the lack of understanding of what, we, what I just explained by the physicians on the, on the panel. And it's, it's worse because this is now congressional record. Peter told, talked about this at the Senate hearing six months ago, and you've got to be up to date with it. We've, we've improved it. We've, given, we've recognized additional things, but the fundamental essence is public knowledge. And why is that we have officials who are meant to be protecting and making sure we do the right thing, being totally ignorant and quoting us articles uh, on people who did who would use Kalitra actually in cytokine storm phase. And this is just like, you know, the height of ignorance. Uh, so, you know, I, I've asked Senator McCullough to have the FDA director explain why this is going on. And I would encourage everybody else, you know, we need to ask what's going on. Why do we have people 
who who lack what they should do at the FDA to review things correctly. And I, I would encourage you to write to your senator so that they can contact Dr. Uh, senator Johnson so they can be abreast of what's going on and keep you all abreast of what's happening. I, I think that's shocking <clears throat> that the doctors at the FDA who are supposed to be watching out for public safety and protect the public and warning physicians about side effects don't even know the under the basic science under, underpinning this disease and don't even respond to you with current studies. That's, that's truly shocking. Absolutely. I mean, this will unravel, but at this moment in time, uh, uh, that's the up to the uh, senators. That's, you know, that's our jurisdiction. We as physicians have to treat our patients and teach others. And that's what I do. And I love to teach my fellow uh, cohorts. Uh, I mean, we, I do Zoom tutorials and uh, we did a talk uh, on a different ch channel and they told me as of Friday, their volume increased threefold and they got global inquiries from physicians outside the United States trying to contact me and Peter so that we can teach them. So this is not just here, it's globally. We need to start the movement so that we can help other physicians to treat COVID early and prevent, prevent people from dying. Well, the online platforms for online learning is just critical in something that is moving this quickly and new information is emerging this quickly. In particular, having the educational programs that you and Dr. McCullough are doing becomes crucially important because so many of the medical journals are also censoring articles on early treatment and creative approaches where you are thinking outside the box to develop innovative approaches for treating COVID. We've, we've had difficulty getting papers published because of the same kinds of blocks on information about treatment. And I don't think any of us fully understand exactly who is in control of that and who is controlling access to information the way it is happening. But I do know that it's costing lives because people cannot get the reliable information they need. There's no question. The censorship we're seeing is at the level uh, of what happens in, in communist China. I mean, the fact that I'm getting calls from Chinese doctors to explain how to treat COVID when the vaccine is readily available is a question. What is going on there? Additionally, Peter showed me, uh, showed me an email from YouTube. YouTube has decided to censor all early treatments, uh, which is crazy. I mean, we, it, I mean they, they don't even have a border view of physicians with various opinions. Dissent is critical. Dissent is important. It's important because honest dissent will lead to progress. And we should dissent and dissent. And we, we have to put our point of view why we dissent to this. And if it's not reasonable, it's, uh, and it's not reasonable. But the question, if it's reasonable, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Well, dissent in medicine and questioning in medicine is the hallmark of the scientific method. We have to question in order to learn and grow and explore new ideas. 
And to the fact that this is being shut down and that YouTube, which, which has no medical panel making these decisions, no one trained in medicine making these decisions, I, I just think it, it borders on criminal negligence to allow that to continue. And yet I don't see anyone in the political arena or the legal arena trying to do anything to stop it. That's a good point. I mean, the whole point, is it, I, mean, I, I mean, I think they will just destroy themselves, but I think most importantly is we need dissent and we need people to come up, get up there and say, this is not right. And we need, need people to say, we could do this better this way. That's been the hallmark of progress in medicine. I mean, I have four issued patents. The US Patent Office will not issue a patent unless you can defend it to the T. And it, it, it's a process. But if you have the solid science behind it, they can't say no. And likewise in medicine, if, you, if it's solid, it will last a testament of time. If it's not solid, it will fizzle. Exactly right. Tell us a little bit about some of the work that you did that led to the patents and also tell us about your practice. I'm interested in the fact that you also work with Lyme disease and some of the neurologic complications, which can be very difficult to treat. I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to know a little bit about other work that you're doing. Sure. Um, I've been very blessed in having the right mentors. And uh, I trained at the University of Oxford where Tony Braun made me think he was a chair at Oxford and was his youngest researcher registrar. He made me think how to solve problems. And I was blessed in where I trained in ophthalmology in Florida at a great guy by the name of uh, Jim Rousey, who really uh, put it out there and gave me opportunity. And one day, a federal judge woke up blind as a bat after being operated by the chairman of neurosurgery. And nobody wanted to treat him. None of the doctors, it was a guaranteed lawsuit. So they, they chose the junior resident of the day, which is me. And it was a Friday and I had to figure out what to do. <laughs> and in a nutshell, we came up with a treatment which worked. The next morning, the, the, uh, you know, before I, I put the treatment across, I had it approved by my chairman. I had to get him to sign a document saying he wouldn't sue us. And luckily he got the best outcome. He saw us the next day. And that was the basis of neuroprotection uh, and the pathways. And to get to that point, I, it wasn't just out of the blue. I'd been brainstorming with guys in the US military uh, who work on classified projects for sarin nervic gas attack. So I learned very quickly how to, uh, how to basically the pathways. And what, what we use is what I call the Watson and Crick approach. If you look at the story of the double helix and read the book by Watson and Crick, it talks about how they actually built models and they used the uh, X-ray diffraction grating of Wilkins from King's College London and Linus Pauling's Alpha Helix. And they stood on the shoulders of giants. And that's how, what we did, myself and a guy uh, by the name of Jerry Ballou. And we put it together and it worked. And it worked for the classified uh, projects too, which I can't talk about. And that was the basis of understanding neuroprotection. So obviously when I started treating Lyme, I was blessed in being double trained and I could pick up the ophthalmic cases because people would sit in my office with their heads tilted. So I began to wonder, is this me or are these heads tilted all the way? So when I got their heads in the right direction and tested their eyes, they started getting double vision. 
and uh, the double vision, well, that was because there was fluid accumulating in a particular place in the brain. We imaged it, we showed it, and it's been, papers have been written about it. And of course, you know, that just went from strength to strength. As we started using high quality imaging, we realized it wasn't just in the brain, it was in the ear. And these people had sound sensitivity to high frequencies, uh, and they were dizzy because it affected the seventh and eighth nerve. And we showed it on imaging and we developed treatments which worked. So now I have a whole bunch of people who, uh, who were being left uh, you know, with problems and we understood how it occurred. And interestingly, even in neurological COVID complications, they show the same MRI findings. <laughs> It's been very interesting uh, to have that background because now we're picking this up on the MRI findings of people who are the long, uh, the long haulers and it's been totally missed. And using the principles we learned from you and me learned on COVID, we're able to treat them. So you're saying that you're seeing similar findings on the MRI in COVID neurologic complications that you saw in Lyme disease complications, neurologic complications? Absolutely correct. We're seeing... Yeah, and we're seeing the enhancement on the seventh and eighth nerve. These people have increased sound sensitivity. Uh, we see uh, double vision. We see, you know, um, mental fog, and that's the same hallmark of inflammation of the brain. That is really fascinating. Now, what specific treatments are you finding helpful for that? Well, it goes to the pathways. Um, ideally, uh, what we did on the, on the case I had on my own staff, I, I had to go back and in the diagram I, I sent to you, the, what I used was a combination of Benadryl and Pepsid. Uh, the Pepsid helped because it prevented the cytokine storm in, in the brain uh, because pe uh, Pepsid can cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, the Benadryl can cross the blood-brain barrier. The Kalitra does good. I mean, if I could have that Japanese Favipravir, which Peter is trying to get here, it, it would work in that. But, you know, I, I, we, we need some help in getting some bird brains of the FDA to understand what's going on. Uh, but it, it worked. Uh, and then, you know, like, you know she, she's 98% better. She had a complication and she's got a lot better. And she's back yeah. to normal. Would there be any possibility of the anti-inflammatory antiviral effects of hydroxychloroquine benefiting those patients, or does it not adequately affect the neurologic manifestations? I can't answer that. I don't know. Um, I think we have to look at the, at the molecular weight of that and how it crosses the blood-brain barrier. As you know, uh, the, the blood-brain barrier is critical, and we've got to have drugs that can cross it. So I have to study that and give you an uh, answer back. I just don't know the, all the top of my well, One of the things that I'm very concerned about with regard to the blood-brain barrier is that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that are in, in have this lipid nanoparticle technology, both of those can cross the blood-brain barrier. And we hypothesize that that's one of the reasons that there are neurologic complications with these vaccines. That's absolutely correct. And that's what you mentioned. We had a case who had uh, Moderna first shot and uh, had neurological complications. MRI findings showed similar to Lyme. Wow. Similar to Lyme disease. Correct. 
this, uh, I really hope our listeners are paying attention to this because I think this is hugely important. And I've known for years because I've worked with Lyme patients um, in other ways, not treat, not being their Lyme specialists, but in working with them on other things while they were being treated for Lyme. And I've recognized that it often has many diverse manifestations, which is why I'm also concerned about the COVID long haulers, because that is a complication that tends to occur if you wait later in treating COVID, it comes to another reason for early treatment. Absolutely. And there's no question about it. I mean, the fact that you lose your sense of smell and taste early is clear evidence is going into CSF surrounding the brain. Well, I, I think we really are helping a lot of people understand why it's so important that we still need to focus on early treatment, even when we have a vaccine, both because the vaccines don't protect people from getting infected. You can still get sick. You can still have COVID and have these complications. And since the vaccines may trigger some of the same complications that we've seen with COVID going untreated. Would you comment as we come to beginning the countdown to the end of our show today, I really would appreciate your talking about why, uh, why are they pushing COVID recovered patients to also get the vaccine when that's never been something we've done? We've never vaccinated people who've recovered from the illness the vaccine is for. What are the risks of that? I can't explain the reason why. The risk clearly uh, that you could get an inflammatory response from the va- uh, from revaccination. I mean, clearly we just talked about the risk of the emulsions going into the brain and causing uh, lesions in the brain. So, you know, they, they are risks. And this is what I'm trying to understand why there's no full disclosure. These things should have been told to us as physicians by the FDA. Look, this is a vaccine, but you know, the patients are at risk of the, you know, the classic black box warning. Uh, it could go neurological deficits. It could have loss of smell. It could have increased sensitivity to sound. Uh, they could have headaches. They could uh, get uh, MRI findings known as empty cellar. I mean, why is that not, that not being told? I mean, what did the review process do? They should have done this before they approved it. Uh, it's just stunning that they did not do that. And what, what is quite alarming, and I don't think the public really understands that this is going on, there were multiple groups of patients that were excluded from the clinical trials. And those groups of patients are now being pushed to get the vaccine. You could probably name, name some of them. No, there's no question about it. Multiple groups of people, including uh, the high-risk patients, you know, the, the diabetics, uh, the more elderly, the frail uh, patients who have a low immunity, people immunosuppressed. Uh, and there has been no thought process. I mean, every time I speak to any of my Lyme patients, that's the first question I ask them. And it's a very... It's a a lengthy discussion because of pros and cons. And the question is, where do we stand? At the end of the day, I just tell them, look, there are complications. uh, And if you do get neurological complications, at least I know how to treat it. Come back and talk to me. I'm confident to say that because I've treated it. 
but I like to teach all the other positions do the same thing. Well, yes, and I'm I'm quite relieved to hear you talk about the fact that you had success with your staff member with the neurologic complications because that's not what I'm hearing from people across the country. So that that is encouraging. But pregnant women were excluded from the clinical trials, and yet now they are pushing pregnant women to get the vaccine. We're already seeing problems with stillbirths, miscarriages, and even maternal deaths from excessive blood clotting. I think it's unconscionable that they were excluded from the clinical trials for obvious reasons of safety, and yet it's being promoted and pushed to pregnant women now without the disclosure of the risk that could occur. Absolutely. We have never, ever given experimental vaccines to our pregnant women. Never, ever. And there's not a question. It should not be done. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that you brought that point up in closing. And I just want to thank you for all of the incredible work you're doing on the COVID front, both in getting out there and thinking through the problems and using existing safe medicines, FDA approved medicines to treat the COVID quickly, and also to educate other physicians. We are really blessed to have you and to have you share your knowledge with us on Voice of a Nation. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm and signing off for today. This is your life, your health, your freedom at stake. Get involved, get loud, and don't be afraid to speak up and help make the world around you a better place.